No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to a point. Never fear, the Treat the Back podcast is here. Forget about your perfectly unscheduled daily Euro 2020 podcasts. We're back with our extremely unscheduled nonsense to take a look at the Euros thus far, where last time we signed off on our Euro 2020 preview show, we gave the heads up about Italy as ones to go all the way with a star-studded squad that looked tournament ready. We managed to avoid the dark horse bandwagon that was Turkey and teed up Switzerland as the one to watch in Group A. And Phil had us all aboard the Ukrainian train and they haven't disappointed with some cracking games thus far. And we even made excuses for Gareth Southgate that he could convince everyone without even knowing his best living. Well, he still doesn't know his best living and he hasn't convinced anyone. I'm joined by Phil Green and Enda Higgins as usual. How are you, lads? Good, thanks. Good, good evening, lads. Later on, we'll be joined by Emmett Gates from the Gentleman Ultra blog to talk about Italy, who look like the team of the tournament so far and a well-oiled machine under the equally well-oiled hair of Roberto Mancini and his exquisite Armani suit. But first, lads, um, we're just about through the group stage here on Tuesday evening. Obviously, we have um, England, Czech Republic and Scotland, Croatia on tonight, just as uh, we're about to hit record on this. But uh, are you enjoying the tournament so far? Yeah, I've been not pleasantly surprised, but I was definitely anticipating a kind of a lower tempo football given the season that uh, the players based in Europe are having to put themselves through. Um, so it's it's been pleasing, and I suppose we've been going through a, a really nice patch in the tournament. Those first two group games, when so much is still kind of up for grabs, it's the last round with all the different kind of weird permutations, and sometimes a, a lack of jeopardy in a few in a few groups kind of tapers it a little bit. But like overall, it's been great. I mean, the amount of football that's been on, you know, like three four games a day has been brilliant. And uh, now we're getting to that bit in the tournament that nobody really likes, where the t- kickoffs are all simultaneous, and we're actually only two days away from having a break and not being able to watch football three day, three times a day, which isn't great for for me personally. But um, overall, I've been I've been pleasantly surprised by um, by how how much people have gone for it, um, given like I said that what I assumed was going to be quite a lethargic pace to the group stage. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it was an exhausting season by all accounts, but seeing fans back in the stadium again, I think, has had a huge impact on some of these matches, which is fantastic. And then, obviously, the Denmark story is kind of the story of the tournament yeah. so far in terms of what happened and how they've managed to turn that around. Um, and just in general, the the pace of games has really surprised me. Um, even the Dutch yesterday could have easily just, you know, taken the foot off the gas. But, I mean, the way they... Um, attacked Macedonia throughout, uh, really surprised me and impressed me. So um, the quality has been very high across the board as well. Um, I was a bit concerned, obviously, um, you know, thinking back to the Euros where uh, 
you know, three teams qualified for most groups. You think of, you know, a lot of boring matches and it, there was nothing really to get excited about. Whereas the quality this time around and the competitiveness in, in all the matches really, uh, bar a handful, um, has been very impressive. So, no, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and like Phil, I'll be, you know, <laughs> sitting in depression in two days time when there isn't a match on, which is, which is a good sign. Because um, I think there's a lot more good games to come as well. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll we'll go through some of the the bigger players um over the course of the show but I mean like you said it's been kind of non-stop action and the tempo is in particular has been um has been really good. Um I was a little bit, you know, I wasn't too sure about how things would go especially after after the season that was um and how the the leagues kind of dribbled out towards the end but um I mean things are teams are really going gung ho um you know some of the bigger teams that we kind of had overlooked, uh, like the Dutch. I mean, Italy have been fantastic to watch, um, and some of the smaller teams. I mean, Finland and ha- have punched well above their weight. I thought um, even Hungary, to a certain extent, were have been very competitive. Um, Scotland, obviously, that draw against England, um, and then, then the whole day felt like such a big occasion. It was a pity um, they didn't get the the three points there. Um, I suppose the only real shocker of a team has been Turkey. Um, I remember on, on that first night against Italy, and they were so bad, and followed that up with a, an equally bad performance against Wales. So, um, definitely, uh, anyone who was on the the dark horse train with Turkey um, left disappointed there. Um, just to follow up on Ender's point. Obviously, the the, the Christian Eriksen incident put a real dampener on things for a couple of days. Um, like I, I was watching it live, and it was just, it was just it stopped you in your tracks, really. Um, I kind of had half an eye in the game, and I, I just happened to 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 throw an eye over, um, as that throw in had been taken, and you know to see him just kind of collapse in the way he did. I mean, it, it's something that's going to stick with me forever. Um, I don't know if either of you saw it live, but it was just just a harrowing moment. Um, but the way things have kind of developed now since, with with I suppose him him getting well, um. Whether or not he'll be on the field again in the future remains to be seen. But the scenes in Copenhagen have been fantastic. I mean, the reaction around around the kind of footballing world has been fantastic. And even kind of, I suppose you know, locally seeing teams and and, and places around here, you know, sharing you know where their defibrillators are located and kind of raising awareness for that side of things. Um, you know, it's hugely important. Um, and I suppose if there are positive, or if there is a positive to to take away from it, it has been the uh, the, the heightened awareness of um, of such uh, you know CPR and defibrillators and, and being proactive when it comes to incidents like that. But um, I suppose we'll get into uh, kicking off with England um, for now. I mean they're playing tonight, so we won't spend too much time on it. But they're gone in with huge expectations. Obviously, they um, they beat Croatia in the opening night, drew with Scotland, so they are true, but. There's still something hugely unconvincing about them, um, and obviously tonight in the the team announcement that Gian Sancho has been left out. So, and I suppose when that transfer goes through, you'll be happy. You'll have a, a fairly fresh Sancho <laughs> yeah, to fully to fully rested, fully rested right winger there for the Leeds game in August. So that'll be that'll be nice. Um, yeah, I mean we 
in fairness, uh, we did flag it, and we don't get much right. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> we we did say this was an England team that you know Southgate was still you know w- once he picked those thirty when he needed only to pick 26 alarm bells were really ringing at that stage anyways in terms of he he'd no idea really how he wanted to shape this squad uh, and prepare for this tournament um and it's quite bizarre really considering that he's had 3 years to prepare and, and the standout england players have been pretty obvious in that time so to think that he couldn't get a formation and and a consistent starting lineup in that time is, is pretty staggering and you know the the phillips um rice pivot is just giving me McFred PTSD <laughs> here in terms of nobody wants to progress the ball forward. Um, Kane's dip has kind of, you know, consistent with his struggles at the end of the season. Um, and then obviously the Sancho thing, being left out of the squad completely for the first game was strange unless he has a knock. And clearly there's some sort of issue there between himself and Southgate that, you know, we're not, we're not privy to. But you know, what surprised me so much about England, I mean, we're going to get on to Italy later on, but we've seen how Serie A and the success and, and the quality of football has transferred directly into the Italian national side. And we're seeing it, you know, with the quality of Netherlands as well. They have um, a lot of Eredivisie players in their team. And yet, you know, the quality in the Premier League has never been higher. Um, and yet Southgate is still struggling to translate any of that to the national team. They have no real rhythm or flow to their game. A lot of their match wins you know, have been down to that kind of individual quality as opposed to, you know, a consistent style of football. Um, and he's gone kind of the safety first route again, like he did in the World Cup three years ago, but um, that was a bit different. Um, there was less pressure on them. So picking that back three uh, wasn't as surprising um, as opposed to going into uh, this tournament with with that kind of negative double pivot, if you like. Um, and then, of course, the Grealish situation. And, and it's putting so much pressure on Grealish then when he does kind of contribute or come on to the pitch considering he's relatively inexperienced in international terms so uh our prophecy has kind of come true in terms of you know they're just kind of winging it and hoping it all clicks fairly quickly and it might do tonight but i mean you know to think this could have been an england team that had bellingham in the pivot grealish as your playmaker sancho and sterling as your wingers i mean that team would create an awful lot of chances, you would imagine. Um, and we've not, we're not going to see it at all in the tournament, which is pretty bizarre. Um, and also, he's kind of persisting with players who are badly out of form in terms of, you know, Sterling really struggled at the end of the season as well. Um, you know, he's changed the fullbacks twice now, which which isn't ideal, even though he's a, he's got a, a great selection to choose from there. But again, it just shows that inconsistency compared that to Italy or the Netherlands, I mean, the Netherlands only made a handful of changes last night, even though they were true, because they're just trying to keep that momentum going. Um, whereas with England, it's like the opposite. He's just trying to trudge on through to the knockout stages and hope for the best. So it's it's quite depressing um, to watch. Um, and the Scotland match was pretty brutal, to be honest. I think even more tortured than actually having to watch them is watch the kind of the, the hoops that the English media and England fans are having to jump through. I mean, like the, the first day against Croatia was, was, was a grand win. It was fine. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But like there was a, there was a headline on a, on a media reaction piece. This is England have finally turned up to a major tournament. And you're like, I mean, Jesus Christ, beating this version of Croatia in the first group game does not qualify that. And then like it turned full circle against Scotland. And there was like vitriol being, being spat about like the, the team, and again, now tonight, uh, the team comes out, and um, there's you know there, there there's the condemnation of no Sancho, 
and this combination of two holding um, midfielders and it like it just feels it must be exhausting like the like the swings like the vi- the vicious mood swings of like we're brilliant and then we're terrible like i know all football fans live some version of it but it's just particularly violent uh, in terms of how quickly they go and um, it must like just a small tiny bit of perspective would be great like you said and uh, at before in our preview we kind of flagged up they've got a pretty tough draw they're a good squad but like they're running into probably more developed sides here um, and they haven't even gotten that far yet. I thought their progress through the group was going to be a little smoother than this, and I thought they'd be a little better than they were. And like they've had this whole emotional journey, nearly a tournament's worth of emotion expelled through two games. And now you can just imagine if they win tonight, uh, which they probably should, it's hard to know, but they probably should win tonight. And if they do, there's going to be another swell leading into whoever they face in the last 16 uh, that, like, you know, this is it. Football is coming home. It, it just, it, it's just—it's exhausting. I just find yeah. it, and I know we get exposed to it like so much because, uh, so, like, a lot of our football media is the English football media. But like, it just—I just like I'm wrecked watching them go through this. Like the furious anger with which they impart upon it. Like, why can't they? Like you were saying, Kev, about the Scots making a day of it down in London. Why can't they just be a little bit more like Scotland? In a lot of things, the, the country would be a lot better if England was a little bit more like Scotland. But the football fans, for sure, just belly be, do a belly slide in, in in Leicester Square before the game. Just relax; it's fine. I, I can feel the Roy Keane side eye already on Phil here. You know what I mean? Just turning up and being happy. Um, but yeah, well, you, well, learned, you know, like even people like somebody who I respect immensely online is like Daniel Story. Um, and even he was saying after the Croatia match, maybe Southgate does know what he's doing after all. And you're like, it was a 1-0 win against a Croatia team that's <laughs> average age is about 40 at this stage. It's like, just cool the Jets. <laughs> we got through a tricky first game, on to the next one, and that's all it had to be. And I agree with Phil. I mean, following it, even from here, has just been exhausting. And, you know, uh, you know, it's like that Real Madrid channel where the guy is just rubbing his hands together all the time, you know, <laughs> waiting for this carnage and drama to develop. Um, you know, we were wondering, you know, would they be booed when they're taking the knee? You know, would there be that English drama about who's playing, who isn't? Now it's the Harry Kane. He doesn't get enough service. What's going on with Sanchez? It's just nonstop, 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 you know? So, um, yeah, like it's fun for us to watch, obviously. Um and I hope it all crashes and burns for them fairly quickly uh, in the next round, which, you know, I, I think it might do. Um, but, uh, yeah, it must be pretty exhausting for the English fans and the players in particular. And I think that contributes a lot to why they constantly have this, you know, recurring issues in, in major tournaments. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine many teams who've just qualified um into the knockout stage, I've been booed off the field, having failed to to beat Scotland. I, <laughs> having been booed onto the field, first of all, for for having to take the knee, um, then to be booed off it, um, and I mean the the Twitter reaction every time, um, a squad selection is announced, it's, it's just box office stuff. Um, even back to the first game when, um, the team was announced, like must have been four or five hours before the game, and people were kind of scratching their heads, wondering why why is this out so early. Um, and it was all about kind of, you know, why is Kieran Trippier at left back? I mean, Sterling starting, you know, what's the story there? Um, last time out, it was kind of about Grealish. Um, you know, pressure started to mount on him. Like, when, when, is he going to come on? Um, 
And obviously now the Sancho thing is, has become larger than life. Um, and until he actually plays a second of football, I mean, the Italian subkeeper has played more more minutes than he has. So um, it just has to... It's a, it's a never a dull moment really with the, the English national team at the moment. Um, moving on quickly to one team that's been mentioned a couple of times is the Netherlands. And I mean... They were in probably on paper the weakest group, um, but regardless, I mean, they were coming into the tournament with probably the lowest stock of any of the major teams. I mean, obviously having uh, lost Virgil van Dijk, Jesper Sillizen is out with injury as well. Um, De Boer isn't hugely, um, I suppose, having to step in for Ronald Koeman last summer um, who went on to Barcelona. I mean, De Boer doesn't have a, a huge amount of credit in the bank either um, and then even in the run-up directly into the run-up um, losing Donny van de Beek um, another United player who'll be uh, nice and fresh for next season uh, in the but it's all coming um, together yep Divin, Divin, it's he was really fresh together, going into but, this um, as well because he barely played for United <laughs> don't, don't 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 be like that we're focused on the Euros can we just please focus sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah but him he's he's got even more reasons to pull off his sad face on the side of the yeah. bench now next season so yeah or Donny. Um, but um, in terms of the Dutch, I mean, they seem to have struck something with Wijnaldum kind of in a more of an advanced role. Um, Frankie de Jong is really having a kind of an outstanding tournament, kind of a, a coming-of-age tournament for him, really. Um, Memphis Depay has been really impressive and obviously Denzel Dumfries, the, uh, the full-back in four. I mean, he seems to have uh, the freedom of, of Europe at the moment down that right-hand side for Holland. So is, has De Boer kind of, unlike Southgate, has De Boer kind of fell into something that seems to work for the Dutch and uh, is getting results so far? Yeah, I, I find it funny, like, I, I completely agree. They were really overlooked coming into this. And if you if you just take things on paper, that seems a bit strange because they they did really well in the Nations League pre-Kuman leaving. And it, they looked like they were kind of turning things around, but like since the Boer came in, it has been like he's been wildly unpopular in, in the Netherlands. His own brother was basically saying that Cruyff would be ashamed of the football he was playing. <laughs> I mean, like one of the most famous duos in football, the most famous duo since the Chuckle Brothers, to the Boer twins, and and um, one of them is saying that the other one is embarrassing the most famous person their country has produced in the football and sense. So it it really wasn't rosy in the garden for, for the Netherlands. Like you look on paper and all those players that you list looked like they should in some sort of way come together, but it just hadn't been really. Um, at least not, not in any sort of way that gave you any confidence that they could do something proper in the tournament. But um, they've been like the opposite of what, like I hadn't seen loads and loads of them. I've seen bits, but everything I'd read in the lead up had said that they were dull and boring and hard to get going. And then they come out against against Ukraine and they're just flying from everywhere. It's just kamikaze. Like you said, Dumfries, Wanyaldum, everyone is just bombing on and going for it. Um they've they've been great and like like when Wanyaldum is shown has shown like a ridiculous versatility. Um, like he played basically six or eight for Liverpool last season, but in like a holding sense. He's been like an eight ten for, for the Netherlands. He's like second top scorer or whatever he is. He's had like more shots on target than Harry Kane, I think. Like they're they look really exciting, um, and like they've got enough there to hurt teams in their starting eleven. They do have some nice options coming off the bench. The only thing I might worry about is if they come up against a side who's a small bit cannier, like you said, Kev. The group 
maybe not exactly yeah. the strongest group that they could have come across. So if they come across a kind of more solid, cannier sides, they might come unstuck. But I mean, they haven't given... Uh, they, they've impressed me a lot. They've probably surprised me the most out of all the teams in a positive sense. Um, which is not... Because it's always nice to have the Netherlands uh, firing at a tournament. But uh, I suppose the kind of proof in the pudding is going to be for them when they step up a level uh, and see if they can maintain this real positivity against yeah. sides who are maybe a bit, a bit more wise to it. Yeah, have absolutely surprised me. I mean, I despise De Boer as a manager, I have to say, especially what he did in the MLS. Um, <laughs> he was given an unbelievable Atalanta squad who had just pissed the league the year before and just turned them into an absolute shambles, you know what I mean? And that was after his failure at Palace and Inter. And I mean, he didn't even pull up trees at Ajax, even though he did win trophies there. But I don't really think he has a managerial philosophy. I, I you know, that's probably a bit harsh, but, you know, you look at what, the Dutch are doing now and it's really down to that kind of core group of senior players who are probably living the best moments of their career certainly Depay obviously getting the move to Barcelona Wijnaldum is you know moving in the summer um Daily Blind has just come back and has a huge influence as well you know Frankie de Jong who you mentioned at the start Kevin you know he had a fantastic season at Barcelona and he's pretty much ready to fully replace Sergio Busquets in that role now for Barcelona going forward like you know, the Catalan media were calling for that a year ago, um, but Koeman didn't really have the guts to drop Busquets, but I imagine he he probably will now next season because of the form that uh, Frankie is producing. Um, and then, uh, like, Daniel Mallon as well, you know, who's mm. had a fantastic couple of seasons for PSV, yeah. you know, just looks absolutely perfect as that kind of foil between kind of Memphis and Wijnaldum, you know. He's got lots of pace. He's very intelligent. He makes good decisions, as we saw for the first goal yesterday. He, you know, very calm for a, such a young striker, which is which is very rare. So it's all kind of clicking. The fullbacks as well, who both play in in, in the local league, uh, have really stepped up. So it's it's just all clicked for them, um, and and I'm delighted for them as well because you know uh, they have suffered a lot. I mean, I watched both of their matches against Northern Ireland in the qualifying stages about eighteen months ago, and it was it was some of the most painful stuff you'll you'll see in a long time. It was like LVG's United basically in. 2016 you know and you just thought it's never going to get it's never going to get better for this group of Dutch players really just they just can't seem to find a way to to make it work whether it's Koeman you know um Blind or you know uh now De Boer you know they just always struggle in those past few seasons to kind of build on the momentum they had from 2014 under LVG but uh it's great to see that they have made a click and you know we've praised Wijnaldum amongst ourselves in the group but I mean He's absolutely been sensational for them, um, and the versatility that he's shown has been. I've, it's, it's very rare to see something like that in a midfielder to basically play as a defensive midfielder for the last two or three years, and then come into the international scene and pick up that number ten role that he had for PSV and Newcastle seamlessly. Um, it's it's you know it's it's almost a freak of nature really to see that, and you know I'm delighted for him as well because he seems like a decent guy. So yeah, I mean I I I hope they can continue their momentum, and I was very impressed with how they. Um, addressed the performance last night in particular, the pace that they attacked Macedonia, because it would have been easy to just sit back and, you know, take the foot off the gas. But, you know, tournament football is all about momentum. And I think the Dutch are really starting to feel that they have that now. And don't forget, um, six foot six foot Wakehorst as well, uh, leading the line, doing the job there with uh, with one of the best names in the tournament. Um Moving on to Group F, and obviously that was the 
the group of the tournament uh, to watch with France, Germany and Portugal. And um, we might touch on France and Portugal in a while. France probably still in second gear. And I think the, the one-all draw with Hungary is probably evidence of that. Um, Portugal were really impressive against Hungary. Um, and obviously following that up with the, uh, the defeat to Germany, who, I mean, they were fairly laboured against France. They looked a little bit... Um, just a little bit, you know, bogged down by how France were playing, you know, happy to sit back and take their one in lead and then just burst into, into action against Portugal. were really, really impressive. Um, and suddenly, you know, after being down and out after the France game and just being kind of dismissed as probably, you know, the third place team in the group, um, suddenly looked like they could be a, a force to be reckoned with uh, going forward, especially if... Um, you know, if the likes of Thomas Muller and, and Kai Havertz especially can uh, can keep up that form. Yeah, well, if the teams they play going forward also refuse to mark Gosens for the entire game, <laughs> I reckon they have a pretty good chance of winning the tournament because he is a, he is a weapon, especially when he's entirely unmarked by three separate men <laughs> that, that were given the role and just didn't look after him. Um, like, th- Germany, if they're anything, are quite tactically astute. I mean, their manager's there a long time and the bulk of their squad play in a very tactically astute league. Um, they, they kind of, like It runs itself nearly at this stage, even allowing for a squad in transition. They did a real number on isolating Semedo or pulling him out of position. It was one or the other. Semedo either came across as, as Germany pulled him across to the, to the left-hand side of the pitch to leave, or sorry, to the left-hand side of their defence, rather, to leave Gosens free. Uh, or um, they isolated him, but they did a great job of targeting him, knowing that Bernardo Silva didn't track him. Then subsequently, Renato, Renato Sanchez and Rafa Silva didn't bother. So they they really like their their intensity and the kind of wave of of attacks that they brought at the start of the game from Germany was really impressive. Portugal fought back really well initially, but I think what's what must worry them is that kind of solidity that they based their win off five years ago. It looks like it's going to be harder to keep that now this time around. Uh, I don't know whether it was just the, the the system with the wing backs from Germany that caused a lot of problems, and the fact that like two of their two of their better players are those wing backs. Like it was like it, it's not the same system as Liverpool, but in terms of the importance of the wing backs, Kimmich and Gosens, it you know akin to Robertson and and uh, Alexander Arnold, but Portugal's solidity, which was really important to how they won in twenty sixteen, doesn't seem to be as present. It's like it was a little easier to to get at all the weak parts of, of Portugal's defence, which all of a sudden looked a little shakier. I mean, Pepe's thirty eight, uh, Ruben Diaz, who's had like an, an incredible year all year, now all of a sudden looks a little bit more suspect. It, it, so I think it's done a lot for what a lot for Germany's prospects, especially if they bring that energy. But you just have to imagine they're they're not going to be given as much space. More teams are going to be like France than were like Portugal in terms of Griezmann tucked in. And played nearly as an, as an auxiliary uh, fullback for France for that last twenty minutes, really to to nail that German system. So you'd, you'd imagine the further they go, they're going to come up against sides who'll really target it now because they've really played their hand in terms of they've shown what they'll do and what they can do when they're given space. But it's really given me pause for my fucking two year long bet on Portugal, <laughs> banking on the fact that they were going to be solid but had enough sparkle. And um, it looks like. That they're like that, um, they're still going for the Santos is still going for the solidity, but without actually being able to deliver it as much, 
so yeah, I, I don't know. I think it nearly says as much about Portugal as it did about Germany. Though, if if they can keep up that intensity, Germany feel like a player now. And you're right. After the the first game, they felt like they were playing for third in the group. Yeah, I mean the the Portugal midfield situation is you know nothing short of an abomination. Really, I mean we've looked at so many teams coming into the tournament and thought, you know, the informed players that they have could really be a huge factor. Um, and now we're going to get down to Italy later on as well, but. You know, Danilo Pereira on loan at PSG this season didn't really pull up any trees. Willem Carvalho was supposed to leave Betis uh, in January for Benfica, but that move fell through and he didn't play too many games for the rest of the season after that. So to think that they could have come in with, you know, Sanchez, who won the title uh, in France, and then one of the Wolves lads, ideally uh, Ruben Neves, because Moutinho is in his mid-30s now, but even if it was Moutinho, at least you have that experience and he was a vital uh, part of that 2016 success um, and that would have given a bit more solidity to the team um, and another issue that we flagged before the tournament is that Santos has never really settled on his best front four um, because of the talent that he has available to him he's you know tried to get Bernardo Silva, Fernandez, João Felix when he was fit, Ronaldo all playing well together but that doesn't give the fullbacks the cover that they need and you know, Germany were just all over that. But, I mean, it was just a mind-blowing negligence to constantly see Goosens. Even after an hour when Sanchez came on, you thought that might be the trick. And even he he let him just run run riled as well. So it was quite a bizarre match tactically from, from Portugal. And considering they struggled for large parts of the first game as well, I mean, you wouldn't have too much confidence in them tomorrow. So um, I'm not really sure how to judge Germany too much, but just because um, Portugal, I just thought, got it horribly wrong on the day. I thought Germany were pretty flat against France, although they did, they did improve in the second half. But uh, with the Muller injury now, that could set them back slightly, and they're still trying yeah. to find their best kind of system as well. Um, and, you know, they don't have a lot to come off the bench in terms of players who are confident. I mean, Sané looks, you know, completely downbeat at the moment whenever he gets a run so it'll be interesting to see if if they can find something a bit extra now with Muller being injured but they don't really have a centre forward per se um, in the role that he was playing when you think in the past they could have brought in someone like Sandro Wagner or something like that they don't really have that type of player anymore you know so Kai Havertz is kind of going to lead the line like he did for Chelsea at the end of the season um, so it'll be interesting to see how they manage that situation but yeah they, they would have gained a lot of confidence from the Portugal match whereas with Portugal I'd I just don't really know where they go from here. You would imagine there would be at least four or five changes tomorrow night, though, if they have any hope of qualifying. Yeah, and, and you pre- covered Portugal pretty well there. And I was, my only point was was uh, uh, I, I highly doubt um, Ronaldo and Diogo Jota are, are bunking together at this stage, um, <laughs> considering the frustration with <laughs> with Ronaldo showing um, to to Jota at times. I mean, he's. He uh, he does the same at Liverpool. Where he just kind of keeps the head down, and you know he battles away. Um, tends to be a little bit greedy, which isn't always a bad thing. But um, you can see the frustration with with Ronaldo. Um, Germany. I mean, the thing with Germany is, uh, you know, they've Joshua Kimmich at fullback, who seemingly is unhappy with with being being thrust out there, and uh, you know, model professional. You know, he gets on with it, and I think he, did he have one or two assists uh, at the weekend against Portugal, but. I mean, their midfield. If they can, if they can find something in the midfield um, with Goretzka, Newhouse, and and Kimmich, and get those three in there and Kroos as well. I mean, they've 
it's some of the best midfield options of anyone in the tournament. You know, up there with um, probably the best on paper, at least. Um, so I think, I think if they can find something there and kind of get a clicking, um, and I think Havertz has quickly growing into that kind of false nine position, if you want to call it that, um, leading the line. Um, just seems to have a really nice knack for goals, and he could be the one to to pop up um, in the knockout stages. Uh, quick word on France. I mean, they're they seem to be in second gear. They're kind of bubbling along. They, um, I mean, it was a professional enough job against Germany. Probably should have won by more. I think Mbappe had a couple of big chances. Um, he was offside for one, um, which was very very marginal. But um, they got caught in on the hop against Hungary. Um, very slow the blocks but again probably should have beaten them so I mean they're they're ticking along they're probably still everyone's kind of favours even though the results haven't been as impressive as Italy or the Dutch or whoever but they still seem like a side that if they do find something that uh, that they're well capable of, of finding three or four goals in, in any game yeah, I suppose we're we're kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt based on reputation yeah. and what they've achieved over over the last little while. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the the German game, I suppose, because it was uh, like relatively high stakes first first time out with uh, with another big team, we were probably a bit more forgiven of that performance. You're right; they were completely in second gear. Uh, they seemed very content just to to kind of hold what they had. I think they were probably a little surprised by how front foot Hungary were, even relatively, not that they completely took the game to them, but like if you watched the game that Hungary played against Portugal, it was complete like two banks of four low block job and get it up to Salazar and let him like hold it up as much as he can. They were relatively speaking compared to that front foot against France. I think that might have taken them a little by surprise, but you're right. By the time they got themselves back into the game, uh, you felt like they could have pressed on and won it. This, I suppose, is the sort of situation where three teams going through in a group is a bad thing uh, because a draw to Hungary would have really put the cat amongst the pigeons, whereas it doesn't really feel like there's any jeopardy. They'll like four points, four points is enough to see them through, more than likely. A draw, even with Portugal, would definitely see them through. So, there's, like, they're probably scrubbing along until they meet somebody and you're, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt of being able to turn it on. But what they've shown so far is a side who's maybe on the cusp of getting stuff going but who definitely aren't exerting themselves um who are doing fine but like you said there's been so there have been sides that's been more outwardly impressive but it's just that kind of latent potential like you like the idea of Mbappe getting that kind of 40 yards and beating three men and either scoring or laying it off for somebody um still remains pretty intoxicating and he for me feels like the spark for them Pogba was really good in the first game I thought Mbappe's been pretty decent in both or at least threatening to be decent and um, so it, it feels like they're trundling along. There's still that kind of weird sense of Mbappe kind of giving out a little bit, hanging over things. Like he had the mm. thing with Giroud and he's trying to take um, trying to take free kick duty and all. Like there's just this kind of weird sense of discord. Well, I say weird. I mean, it's it's in the best of French fashion at major tournaments to have a sense of discord. But they'd seen so kind of such a smooth machine in, in 2018 that just to see that kind of rancor bubble up and to come not from Benzema like people expected, but from Mbappe is interesting. It might be something that, that might trip them up uh, further down the line, but I, it's probably a bit too early to judge them uh, just yet. Like, I think they'll still be in the shake-up. I think you're right. They're probably still rightly most people's favourites, um, but they probably feel a little bit more vulnerable than they did at the start of the tournament, but they, they're, they probably should still be fine. Yeah, I suppose France will be thinking, well, 
this was kind of how 2018 started out for them as well. Very unconvincing against yeah. Australia. The 1-0 win in the second game. And then they had the only nil all of the entire tournament uh, in their final group game. So I, I don't think it'll be panic stations yet. Um, but yeah, there's a bit more of a dramatic feeling to them. Certainly the Mbappe stuff is kind of dragging on a bit. And they're, <laughs> they've literally held you know, an internal courtroom scene where they've decided that he's going to take their free kicks from now on and not Griezmann. Um, or Benzema, who took one uh, in the second game. So, you know, just stuff like that is all a bit dramatic and weird and very French. Um, and the Benzema situation, it kind of feels like it's almost a testimonial every match for him, where everybody is looking for him, wants him to score, is dead for him to score. And he feels that almost pressure, whereas you look at how relaxed he was and what a talisman he was for Madrid once um, Zidane returned. Um, uh, two seasons ago whereas you know you can almost feel like he has that pressure to really uh, turn it on for France whereas Giroud is more of a, a natural foil for Mbappe and Griezmann and Pogba to kind of play around where with Benzema they're still kind of work their way back into uh, finding some sort of sync with him and then obviously Pavard has been really poor so far at this tournament uh, for somebody who was quite reliable for them in 2018 um, and it looks like he's going to be dropped tomorrow uh, for Kunde, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there'll be too much panic from the French side uh, by their standards, anyways. But um, yeah, I would have expected something a bit more cleaner from them so far, especially considering how good they looked uh, in their warm up games as well. But um, you know, uh, whether Rabio or Chaliso starts tomorrow, I think that'll be one of their biggest decisions as well. More so with looking ahead to the next round rather than um, you know seeing how they perform tomorrow so uh, they have a couple of couple of issues to fix but I, I think they'll be fine and you know Mbappe does look the key for them um, just as he was in 2018 I mean once he really once he really exploded from that Argentina game onwards especially I mean there was really no stop in France after that so um, yeah I suppose they're expecting something similar in this tournament. In terms of some of the other um, runner and riders, I suppose Belgium, nine points from nine in their three group games, um, look a hell of a lot better with Kevin De Bruyne than without. You, like, the, like I know Denmark were riding a wave of emotion in that first half uh, in their first game after Christian Eriksen, but I thought Belgium were terrible, like really, really awful. Um, I, like uh, people, like obviously with Jan Vertonghen having left Spurs, uh, I don't see a lot or any of the Portuguese league but uh, I was well informed that his legs were going at Benfica and that first half really really showed that he got really badly exposed time and time again by Denmark who as good a side as they are aren't exactly flyers they're not exactly you know the most expressive attacking team in the tournament so <clears throat> that did make me quite worried for for Belgium when they come up against a Germany or or an Italy uh, or or Netherlands somebody who's going to get at them with, with, a, with a bit of pace uh, along the sides it, it did give me a bit of pause but then you know De Bruyne came on and it made everything okay uh, like two like two ridiculous goal involvements like the 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 touches for the first goal were just sublime and then uh, I, I gave the keeper I gave um, keeper a bit of a, a bit of stick uh, for the, the second goal on first view and it just looked like it was kind of one of those ones where it wasn't in the corner and maybe should he have gotten done but just how sweet De Bruyne struck it, and um, like he's, he is such a difference maker to them, and like Lukaku continuing his really good form, and um, so like they've got enough going for them. But there's just that question about their backline still. It's a mix of players who are maybe too old, and some who maybe aren't good enough 
Um, they do have a good last line of defence. So it's, I think they're still up in the air. They did what they needed to do um, with a pretty much a minimum of fuss, but I, I don't think they were ever going to be judged on what happened in the group either. I think um, we'll really see the true test of Belgium when they come up against these kind of fellow heavyweights, probably in, in the last eight. Yeah, Denier was a nervous wreck as well against Denmark. So um, yeah. they've two big question marks, at least in that back three. And then Alderweireld isn't exactly at the peak of his powers at the moment either. So um, even when De Bruyne did come on, there still was enough hope for Denmark to, um, you know, get back into the match. Um, so, you know, that pressure and emphasis that they're putting on De Bruyne to really be their talisman, um, a bit like City when it when they get to the kind of quarterfinals and semifinals of Champions League knockouts it's kind of a similar situation where everything has to filter through him and if 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 a team can stop that um you know if it's France Kanté like he did um many times for Chelsea for example mm. um I, I do think Belgium will have big problems as well Torgan Hazard being injured at the moment as well is is a problem as he's been quite important at, in that wing back role um in the 3-4-3 and then Eden Hazard really struggled last night as well, even though he 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 looked quite good when he came on the second game, but nowhere near the level that you know you'd expect. Um, so there's a few question marks there, um, and I I don't really see them getting over the line if somebody can stop De Bruyne. Um, I suppose f- finally, just to take off Spain um, in uh, in Group E, I mean they've been hugely disappointing. Um, two points from the two games so far, two draws. Um, I mean, Sweden were really good in that opening game, um, stifled them completely, and obviously the the Poland one as well. But um, I mean, uh, Damien Duff has been uh, has been skating of the minority. I don't know if you've been watching that, but uh, yeah. I think he said just you know death by a thousand cuts, and it's 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 some sort of kind of shadowy version of of the tiki taka from from ten or eleven years ago, but. They just don't have the that clinicalness that they used to have, um, and especially with Alvaro Morata, who's becoming a, a meme in himself. I mean, some of the ch- chances he's missing, um, and it was really summed up then by that that penalty follow up that uh, that he hit wide um, from Jared Moreno. Um, I mean, first of all, they're hugely at risk of, of not even getting out of the group stage, which would be, you know, considering that some of the third place teams are getting through, it would be a huge embarrassment for him uh, or for Spain and for Luis Enrique. But, um, I mean, they're, uh, just to reiterate, like what Duff said, I mean, they're enjoyable to watch, but to a, to a point where it just kind of gets boring and they don't have that same, you know, verve as they used to do with, uh, with some of the more attacking players and they're, they're missing something and obviously it doesn't help when you've, uh, uh, your your best striker is, is such low on confidence as Morata is. But um, it's not looking good for Spain, is it? Yeah, like I have to say, I, I, I thought that they'd get through the group pretty comfortably and then get beaten by the first good side they met. Because um, like, you look at the squad and it's full of of good players uh, with a smattering of really good players. But like you said, it's not a patch on, on any of the, the sides from that from the golden era. It's definitely... Not not fit to lace the boots of the the real peak of that side, but I suppose like the 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 lack of goal scoring is is a problem that's gone on longer than just this team. I mean, like you look at that twenty ten World Cup side, and it was a string of one nils. You know, it wasn't um, like a complete dominance, but it was never absolutely hammering teams out of sight. Um, 
and now what what they're doing is they're they're trying to do what they did before just less effectively because they don't have Xavi and Iniesta and they don't have Villa or Torres to stick it in the net. Like when when Enrique came back, he was all about the idea of restore or of bringing in a bit of verticality to the side, similar to what he did with his Barcelona team uh, with with Messi, Suarez, and Neymar, and kind of not moving away from Tiki Taka, but kind of removing the the kind of monotony of it and going a bit more vertical and a little bit more direct is the wrong word, but we'll, call, we'll use it for want of a better one. Um, but like that has been the opposite of what they've been in this tournament. There's just no cut and trust in them. Like you said, Morata, it's nearly cruel to have him out there at this stage now. Like he, he's approaching things. Like I, I, I'd imagine he was shocked that he managed to score against Poland because like everything <laughs> he does just looks like he's getting ready to like, like express exasperation and having missed um, like it, it's almost cruel to have him out there suffering, and like outside outside of Pedri, who's who's been really good and has continued this like remarkable rise, like it's been a really terrible tournament for them. Um, like I, I just assumed because that group again isn't the strongest. It's not the, it's not the, the weakest group I've ever seen, but like it should be something that they're they're a, a level above these teams. But like there, there's just no sense of of kind of cutting edge to them at all. Um, I, I, I'm disappointed by them and I didn't have massive expectations for them but I, I'm even a level below what I expected out of them and like worse than kind of transition which is what it looked like a squad in transition it, it looks like a squad but without much of an idea at the minute yeah like this was not a tournament ready team by any means and you just look at the starting 11 for example I mean Lorente at right back, they're just trying to get him to reproduce his Atletico Madrid form, which, you know, is a completely different team and formation and manager. You know, Laporte is a fantastic defender, but he's literally declared for Spain a few months ago and trying to pair him with Pau Torres when they're both left centre-backs and both left-footers has been a bit odd. Um, you know, cocaine centre midfield hasn't really turned it on for Spain like he has done for Atletico Madrid. Very kind of functional player who, who belongs in a certain team, in a certain system. Um, and then the whole Gerard Moreno thing, you know, has been bizarre. I mean, by far and away, the best Spanish striker this season, as we saw, you know, in the Europa League and, and in the Liga for Villarreal. Um, and seeing Morata start over him and, and then, you know, Enrique being quite vocal as to why that's happening. Um, and even Dani Almo is a player I like a lot, but he's not really at that level that you would expect from, you know, uh, a starting tournament Spanish front three player. So, it's just a squad that's been all over the shop and it, it's shown their performances. I actually thought initially they started against Sweden quite well, but once Morata missed that chance, they all just kind of sank into their shoes a bit and it was quite painful towards the end. And, and a similar thing happened against Poland once once uh, Lewandowski equalised. Um, and obviously then Moreno missing the penalty, which is very rare for him, but that's a, a, probably as a result of the pressure that he feels just because he has to prove himself because Enrique has been so publicly backing Murata, so it's it's all a bit of a mess at the moment. And even if they do qualify, you'd imagine that they, they won't go further than that. First, I thought you cheeky bollocks to me, guys. On, excuse me, <laughs> this is live. Delighted to be joined by football journalist and editor of the fantastic Italian football blog. The Gentleman Ultra, Emmett Gates. Thanks for coming on, Emmett. Hope you're well. No, no problem. Glad to be here. Yeah, doing well. Enjoying the Euros so far anyway. <laughs> oh, enjoying Italy for sure. Um, Emmett, I don't know if you know, but um, today is the fifth anniversary of Ireland's uh, 1-0 win against a fairly depleted Italian selection at Euro 2016. 
Um, obviously, that team then went on to beat Spain in the last 16 and lose to Germany on penalties in the quarterfinals. But this Italian side seems so much more different to that team. Um, I suppose, can you explain really like what's changed with the team and, and with Roberto Mancini since he took over that has them playing fantastic football? But I suppose it's not usually a, a style you'd associate with an Italian team. It's it's like night and day the difference between that um, that Italy side that beat uh, that Ireland defeated you know under Antonio Conte. Um, I think you have to give some some a lot of credit to Conte because if you look through that Italy squad at Euro twenty sixteen compared to past Italy squads, it's there. You know he managed to make you know Serie B level players. <laughs> got them to the quarterfinal of the of the Euros, you know. So Conte basically rang every last drop out of, you know, a lot of the players were mediocre, if you were being honest. Um, and actually, I did see earlier on Twitter that Ireland, it was five years ago to the day, that Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, beat Italy. Um, that was not the game that Gigi Buffon ran over to Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane to, like, celebrate after the final whistle. <laughs> <laughs> and Ray Keane just like it is, yeah. he Ray Keane just has a face, you know, you're invading my personal space. What are you doing? <laughs> um but basically the tipping point for the current Italy setup is October twenty seventeen and Italy basically being eliminated by Sweden in the World Cup playoff. So Italy not making it to the first World Cup since nineteen fifty eight. And for a nation that at the absolute least expects qualification to a World Cup, you know, this was an earthquake, you know, of seismic proportions. And I think it wasn't even in the fact that they didn't qualify. Obviously, not qualifying, you know, was almost blasphemous for most Italians. But it was the dire situation that Italy were in, in terms of they weren't producing players the style of play was dreadful, even, you know, in comparison to ultra-conservative Italian standards of, you know, the last 20, 30 years. Under Gian Piero Ventura, Italy were awful. And it was, this was the lowest ebb. Ventura gets the boot, um, wasn't really willing to fall on the sword, was kind of forced. And Roberto Mancini then takes over the mantle. And basically, Italy was at a point where... They were so low that Mancini essentially said, "Okay, I'm going to do this my way. Every if if Italy is is going to be resurrected, and we're going to get the team going, it has to be done in my style, the way I want it to be done." Mm. And Arrigo Sacchi, like if you if you think of Italy over in the 2010s, apart from reaching the final in Euro 2012 and reaching the quarterfinal in Euro 2016, Italy had a dared. Italy were awful in that entire decade. Went to the 2010 World Cup and went out in the group stage. You know, one of the worst title defences of a World Cup you'll ever see in a group of Slovakia and New Zealand and I can't remember offhand who the other team in the group was, but it was an awful group. They go to the 2014 World Cup and again, they exited the group stage. I think they, they, they win once, they beat England and then they lose to Costa Rica and lose to Uruguay. So, Italy were, Italian football was in a bad place. And so after the 2010 World Cup, Arrigo Sacchi is brought in. Basically, 
they looked at the Spanish model and said, obviously in Italian in Italian football, the result for decades going back to the nineteen thirties, the result is all that mattered. Style of play, no, we don't care about that. All it all that matters is winning. But Arrigo Saki obviously is the antithesis of that. Obviously, his great Milan sides from the late eighties, early nineties played swashbuckling football. So the Italian Football Federation brings in Arrigo Saki with this mandate essentially to retool how the young young youth graduates at all Italian sides or how they play and at international level. So under 14s, under 15s, under 16s and so on. Um, and basically enough time has passed now where you're getting Italy has burned the fruit of that, of Saki's implementation with the likes of Federico Chiesa, you know, uh, Domenico Berardi uh, and etc. But also it's because Mancini... I think it's benefited that Mancini has coached in England and then in St. Petersburg. He hasn't always stayed in Italy, so he knows that there is another way to play the game. And Mancini himself, as a player, was a real swashbuckling number 10, you know, for Sampdoria and then later Lazio. So Mancini wants the team to play in the way he played as a player, which also helps. But it basically all stemmed from not qualifying for the World Cup. Emmett, I suppose one of the undoubted highlights of the, the tournament so far, and we talked about it just off air, has been uh, how fucking cool the Italian management team have looked on the line in their Armani suits. <laughs> yeah. um, and like the, the sheer drape of Mangini in his in his post-match interview after the, the Wales game, the, the jacket draped over his shoulder. But he's not just, a, you know, he doesn't bring a, just a good dress sense to the Italian team. Um, you mentioned, obviously, all the work that, that Saki implemented in that kind of root and branch uh, overhaul of, of the Italian youth setup. But how valuable is it for this kind of relatively inexperienced Italian team to have a manager in charge of them who basically only in the tournament Luis Enrique can hold a candle to in terms of club achievements? You look at every other manager in the tournament and uh, they either have no club history to speak of or their their achievements are far inferior to Mancini. How beneficial to Italy has it been to have um, like a manager of his standing in charge of a relatively inexperienced bunch in an international sense? Uh, it's it's crucial. I think Mancini is the star of this Italy team. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at the Italy team, there's no for the first. I was I was going to say the first time in a long time, but you know, in, until recent history, Italy always had a great number ten. You know, whether it was Gianni Rivera or um, Roberto Mancini himself in the mid eighties, and then you got Roberto Baggio, Alessandro Del Piero, Francesco Totti, Gianfranco Zola. Italy always had a number 10. There was always at least one world-class number 10 or Traquatista, as this, as the position is known in uh, Italy. But this team, maybe apart from Marco Verratti, there are no world-class players. There are a lot of good players, very good players, but relatively few world-class players. And this is where Mancini comes in. Because if you look at this Italy team, they look coached. You know, it doesn't just look like if you if you watch Italy in past tournaments, it's like a collection of superstars come together, yeah. and there's just some manager, whether it's Trapattoni or Sacchi or Marcello Lippi or Antonio Conte or Cesare Prandelli, and he's trying to consign all these collection of stars into a cohesive unit, and they're not they don't they didn't, they never really look coached. Whereas with Mancini, because of how good 
of a coach Mancini is, Italy actually look like a they look like a club side almost, as opposed to if you look at uh, France with Didier Deschamps, it's the ex- same thing, a collection of superstars, and you're trying to fit jigsaw puzzles together. Italy look nothing like that. They don't have the players that France do, but in Mancini, that's the real the real star almost. Emmett, obviously we're we're coming off uh, a really interesting Serie A season and I know uh, Inter obviously ran away with it in the end, kind of similarly to, to Juventus have been um, over the past 10 years or so. But, you know, when you look at the squad, um, you're really struck by how spread out it is across um, a plethora of the teams there competing at the top of, of Serie A. I mean, you've one from Milan, you've two from Roma, Lazio, Inter, Torino and Atlanta, you've three from Sassuolo, uh, three from Napoli and then four from Juventus. Has that kind of spread across the top teams helped in terms of, you know, getting a good band of players together who, you know, they're all playing, they're all um, competing at a fairly high level and they're all kind of geared towards uh, a national team under, like you just said, a, a manager who's managing to turn them all into a, a fairly cohesive unit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, Milan of one player, um from the tournament in Donnarumma, but Donnarumma is now signed for PSG, so suppose Milan have no, no players at the tournament now. <laughs> um, and I mean, you look at Juventus, Juventus is generally throughout history, Juventus have been the bedrock of all great Italy teams. You know, if you think back to the 1982 World Cup, you know, they had six or seven of the players who won that tournament played for Juventus. The same with the 2016, you had maybe four or five players. There's only four players from Juventus in this squad, which is the fewest amount since 90, Euro 88. So what, you're talking 30, 33 years since there's been this, you know, only four Juventus players making up the Azzurri squad. And obviously you've got three from Sassuolo, two from Atalanta. And I think it's that is a result of the big three, Juve, Milan and Inter, signing a lot of foreign players and so Mancini has had to look further down the league and in the likes of with Sassuolo for example you know you've uh, Locatelli and Baradi they're they're starting week in and week out and and Sassuolo did play very attractive football under Roberto De Zerbi last season who now has signed for Shakhtar as coach so it'll be interesting to see if Sassuolo adapt the same model next season um, but this is the first time in my lifetime of watching Italy teams that there isn't a real concentration of the big you know, of players from the big three, and plus Roma and Napoli. You know, it, Mancini has looked throughout the entire league almost for players, so it's really interesting, and it's I think it's reflected in the way Italy play because. Mancini has lent on players who play in a similar way for their clubs. You know, like Berardi, for example, plays in the same position for Sassuolo as he now does for Italy. Same with Chiesa, same with mm. um, Locatelli at Sassuolo, and obviously Verratti and Jorginho play in similar positions for Chelsea and PSG. Um, so it's definitely benefited Mancini, I think, that he is picking players that are starting week in and week out in Syria as opposed to bringing bench players that are sitting yeah. on the bench for Juve, Milan, Inter, which has happened historically. And, I mean, 
obviously we we, we kind of can have a laugh about Mancini and, and the Armani suits and whatnot, but <laughs> other than that, I mean, he he's been fairly stone faced on the sideline. I mean, the, it does strike me that they are there to do a job. It seems all very professional. Um, Eugene Lucavielli kind of little bit of a smile on his face when when the camera cuts to him, but I mean, it, I am struck by how much of a kind of a unit he has built, and um, you know, even when bringing on Salvatore Sirigu um, at the end of the Wales game, just to get him a couple of minutes, um, suggests that it's a, uh, you know, it, it's a camp all gearing towards one goal. And um, I was really surprised now to hear that Mancini hadn't played a second of of Italian ninety, so he doesn't really want any of his players to to kind of go through that feeling of being taken along to a, a national tournament and, and not getting a minute of action. So um, he does he does have a, a nice camp there and it all seems to be uh, rowing in one direction. Yeah, because, I mean, at Italia 90, I think Mancini probably would have got minutes, um, especially with Mancini and Viali, you know, doing so well for Sampdoria at the time. But Roberto Baggio just basically broke down the door with that goal, famous goal against Czechoslovakia and Mancini. And then obviously you have Scalacci that basically took over the tournament, which nobody foresaw. And Mancini was just relegated to not even a bit part player, just he's in the squad. So I think obviously he, he's remembered that feeling. And I think it was nice, you know, for him to give Sirigu a couple of minutes, you know, it was not going to do anybody any harm. It would keep Sirigu, keep that feeling of being involved and yeah, I think he's fostered a really good spirit within the squad, which has not often been the case with Italy squads. I think Prandelli had that at Euro 2012 and Lippi had that in 2006. But a lot of times when you look at Italian teams at tournaments, there does feel, you, you do get the impression that they're kind of disconnected or they're, they're, there's not there's a lack of cohesiveness that there is in this Italy squad. And you, you can only credit Mancini with that. Emma, you made an interesting point earlier about, you know, almost the, the death of the Italian number 10, if you like. Um, and we're seeing sort of a, a very modern type of Italian midfielder come through where very competitive off the ball, press high, um, very good in tackle. But then when they are on the ball, you know, they still have that style and flair that you would expect from, you know, an Italian number 10, um, even though they're, they're playing more of a box-to-box role now. And, you know, as successful as that is proving to be for Mancini, he now has a decision to make as to who partners Jorginho in the next match. He can really pick from two of Pessina, Verratti, Locatelli and Barella. Um, who do you think he'll go for in that situation? Uh, I My feeling is that he'll go for Jorginho, Barella and Locatelli. Um, obviously, Locatelli isn't as good of a player as Marco Verratti is, but Mar- Verratti is made of glass. And if you play him two games consecutively, he could get injured again and he could miss games later in the tournament. So my feeling is that Mancini will revert back to the the team that he that started against Switzerland and Turkey. And so I think Verratti will miss out. But I think, yeah, it'd be Locatelli, Barella and Jorginho because they all complemented each other very well. And, and, and that's the thing about this Italian team. They all know their roles individually and collectively. They all can do a job. It's almost like interchangeable uh, chesses or pieces on a chessboard. It's like you take one out and you put another player in and he offers exactly the same characteristics as the player he's replaced. 
And obviously some players are better than others, but it's it's not like it's not like before it was in the nineties where you would take out Baggio or Zola or Del Piero, but the replacement isn't as good or can contribute in the same way. With this team, Mancini can take out, for example, against Wales, he, he made eight changes, but it didn't seem to make any difference. Italy played in the exact same way, in the same style. So I think Verratti should be saved for maybe a quarterfinal or semifinal when Italy or Mancini can rely on his experience because Verratti is one of the more experienced players in this Italy squad. And I suppose looking at, you know, the success of Serie A translating to the national team in the last sort of decade or so, and, and how that has led to, you know, this removal of the playmaker, for example, you know, once Mourinho left Inter, really, we saw this new kind of generation of football kind of kick in in Serie A, kind of, we saw it with the Napoli from three, for example, and that's kind of developed now. We see it with Sassuolo, we see it with Atlanta, you know, Inter with Conte, for example. I know that's kind of a front two, but they still try to have, you know, a front three in possession. Um, you know, do you think that's been a huge part of their success or do you still think that, you know, it's more about Mancini just working with what's available to him? Um, I think it would be a bit of both. Um, but definitely, I think Mancini deserves a lot of credit for what's happening at the moment because if you think of where Italy were three and a half years ago, Giampiero Ventura had a lot of the same players, but Italy were beyond terrible. You know, the, the way they played. And I mean, they played Sweden over two legs and I think maybe they had about three shots in target. And, you know, this was a Sweden, Zlatan had retired. So it wasn't as if Sweden were backed by Ibrahimovic. You know, this wasn't a great Sweden team either. And Italy just looked awful out of ideas. And mostly it was a lot, you know, not a lot. You know, obviously, uh, Gigi Buffon was there, Daniele De Rossi, who have since retired. Um, but Ventura could have called upon a, a large quantity of the same players. I mean, he ignored Insigne and Jorginho and Marco Verratti for a lot of his run. So, and then you see what Italy are doing now with those same players, and you just think, you know, why? Where was this three or four years ago? But I suppose the the Italian national team had to kind of hit that rock bottom for all the goodness that's happened now. Um, and in Syria, I think there's actually less Italian players for Mancini to choose than, say, 25 years ago. I think I remember Marcello Lippi saying that when he was coach of the national team when Italy won the World Cup, he had, was it 54%? Was the pool of players that he could pick from? And I think now it's like 34% or it's like under 50% of uh, Italians playing in Syria. So I think the pool has shrank, but the players that kind of do make it to the, to the top levels and who start the quality tends to be pretty high. Emmett, this strikes me as an Italy side closer to the beginning of its cycle than its end. Uh, it kind of reminds me even a little bit of the Germany team from the 2010 World Cup, that kind of young swashbuckling outfit led by Muller and Ozil, um, who were really impressive in the early stages of the tournament, but ultimately got edged by, by a kind of more battle-hardened Spain. I suppose where I'm heading with this is... Um, 
how do you think this Italy side, many of whom who haven't had loads of major tournament experience, aside from probably the, the two centre halves, how do you think they're going to handle things when it gets hot and heavy uh, in the kind of high stakes knockout football in the quarterfinals or semifinals that you mentioned earlier? Do you think they're set up to handle the pressure of occasions like that? Well, that's that's the thing. Um, as we've said before, it's a relatively inexperienced and young side, and they haven't really. Th- th- this is the thing that you know, like Joy Neville and Patrick Vieira and Ray Keane were talking about this on ATV the other night. Um, and Joy Neville, in particular, came out with some ludicrous remark. You know that he wasn't impressed with Italy because look who they're up against, and they haven't come up against a strong team in qualifying which is true but I mean you can only beat what's in front of you and if England had played half as well and Italy had played Joy Neville would be jumping up and down on live TV so (laughs) you know (laughs) you can only beat who is in your group but as we get further on the turn I mean they're playing Austria on Saturday at Wembley so again you think you know not a tough not tough opposition I mean, in the in the UEFA Nations League group, they played Holland and they beat Holland. And I mean, they didn't play as good as they're playing in this tournament. But the Netherlands is, I'm, I'm assuming, oh, yeah, we call them the Netherlands now. I keep saying Holland. <laughs> Old habits and all that. Um, <laughs> Holland, or, there we go. The Netherlands is probably the, the most difficult team that they've faced. Even in friendlies, Italy, you know, they haven't really played any heavy hitters. So, and I think the objective from Mancini is the World Cup and not necessarily, I think anything, anything past the semifinals in this tournament is a bonus. I think the objective was quarterfinals, semifinals, build on it in, in view of Qatar 2022. Um, so, yeah, it will be interesting to see how Italy, how the, how the, the Italian players you know, because there only really is, you know, obviously there's Giorgio Chiellini, Leonardo Bonucci and Verratti that are experienced at the highest levels. Mm. Verratti obviously played in Champions League final as has Bonucci and Chiellini. But aside from those three, obviously Jorginho has just won it with Chelsea. So there you're four from a squad of, what, 26 that are experienced and most of them really aren't. Um, but then again, this Italy team could surprise, you know, people, they could... You know, the their inexperience could go in their favour because they kind of feel well with maybe nothing to lose. The objective is the World Cup and you know in what eighteen months' time. Mm. So it's kind of hard to say, but I think in Mancini, what what did they have in their favour at this point is a coach like Mancini, as you know, we alluded to earlier, apart from Luis Enrique, there is no one currently managing the national teams that have the track record that Mancini does. So I think that gives Italy an advantage, even if they, they do come up against a Portugal, a Germany, um, even a France, say. You know, Deschamps, Didier Deschamps has been managed in France for what? A decade, maybe less, just slightly mm. less. So, I mean, he's been out of the club game for so long, whereas Mancini was was the coach of Zenit till 2018, 2017. So I think, yes, the, the players are inexperienced, but I think having Mancini gives them an advantage when it comes to the quarterfinal, semi-final, if they get there. And I suppose it does help as well that uh, the Qatar World Cup is just around the corner and uh, and we are a year closer to it than, than we otherwise would have been. 
Um, you mentioned there that, you know, Mancini might have an eye on Qatar, but if they do get past Austria and on into the quarterfinals, semifinals, is there is there a huge expectation amongst the uh, the Italian fan base or is it a little bit more reserved, um, unlike, say, for example, um, our friends uh, over in England? <laughs> um, I think it- Italians in general have been very... Considering what's happened over the last, you know, decade or so, you know, disappointment after disappointment, they're very cautious, I would say, in their optimism. But considering how Italy have played in the three group stage games, I think optimism is building. Um, But if you ask most Italians, they would probably rather win a World Cup than a Euros. So I think... It's kind of like what, what I what I said a minute ago. Anything past the semi-final, you know, as long as they have a good showing at this tournament, anything else is a bonus, really. Um, obviously, you know, you'd like to win it or you'd like Italy to win it or, you know, you obviously want your country to win. But I think they know that this is a young and inexperienced side and this tournament is more about gaining experience as opposed to winning the tournament. Um, but I think optimism definitely is growing and obviously, again, they've got Austria on Saturday, which, you know, let's be honest, again, mm. isn't going to be a big test. So, you know, we could be uh, sitting here a week from now if Italy's in the quarterfinal against maybe, I don't know, Portugal or Germany or France. It'd be interesting to see if that optimism is still the same when it comes time to face a big team. Because it's something Matthias Delict commented on. He was asked about Italy, obviously, because he plays for Juventus and Delict was b- brutally honest and he was like, Italy haven't played against any big teams yet. I don't know what all yeah. the fuss is about. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the optimism is in a week from now. I'm surprised you say there that the, the fans would prefer the World Cup. Um, Clara, just in the run-up to the tournament, I was kind of surprised to see it's 1968 now. Since the last one, the Euros, which is it has to be one of the, the longest droughts of any team to have won it. Yeah, con- considering you know Italy's lineage and history, um, they got to the final, of course, of Euro two thousand, semi final in Euro eighty eight, um, and the final of Euro twenty twelve. But generally, Italy don't do that well in this competition. Mm. In fact, they didn't qualify for most of the seventies and into the eighties. And they missed out in Euro 92, were awful at Euro 96. Italy's relationship with this tournament is more, it's it's mixed in a way. And more often than not, the World Cup is kind of seen as, you know, their tournament or the tournament they always like to do well in. Um, but yeah, it's long overdue that Italy actually gets a second Euros. <laughs> I mean, I think they won in 68 by a time cost. <laughs> or sorry, a coin toss. Um, like you imagine that now, you know, two captains yeah. at the halfway line, right, lads? Heads or tails? <laughs> What's on the line now? Just the Euros. That's an interesting little fact there. Um, but like I said at this beginning, I mean, Italy have been such a joy to watch. Um, so fair and on and off the field. So, um, definitely, uh. One we'll be keeping a close eye on over the next couple of weeks. Emma, thanks a million for coming on tonight. Really appreciate it. No, no problem. A pleasure, lads. Great to be on. Thanks for 
respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. Respect. So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>